Today we conclude uh, our series on Romans 8, how God brings us safely home. And I'm going to try to bring us safely to the end of the chapter. Um, would you pray with me, please? Thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the Spirit of God who moves in our midst, who dwells within us, by which we have been sealed for the day of redemption. Thank you for the work of the cross, for the love of your Son. Thank you for your covenant faithfulness. We praise you and we give you glory. Amen. Our main idea today is the covenantal love of God securely guarantees for those in Christ an overarching victory and accomplishes God's eternal purposes. How does someone married know if he has married the right person? Hmm? Well, many may try to come up with different ideas or strategies on how to solve this enigma. The answer really is simple. All you have to do if you're married is that you go to your safe at home, you open it, you take the secure files, you take out a nicely decorated document entitled Marriage Certificate, and amazingly, the answer, it's uncovered there. <laughs> and that piece of paper, whose name is written next to yours, that is the right person. The contract of marriage and that of adoption are the closest contractual agreements that reflect the covenantal commitment that God has made with His people. In my marriage contract, for example, I will find the name Sarah Grant written next to my name. She's the one I chose to enter into covenant relationship with before God, and she is special to me because I chose her. And I am special to her because she chose me by God's grace. <laughs> because of this decision made before God, we have a special and unique relationship. The same can be said about the relationship between God and His people. An example of this we find in the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 6, regarding Israel, Moses wrote the following, It is not because you were the most numerous or the biggest of all the peoples that the Lord favored you and chose you, for in fact you were the least of all peoples. Rather, it is because of His love for you and His faithfulness to the promise He solemnly vowed to your ancestors. This is the promise of the covenant. I am special to Sarah because she chose me, and she entered into that special relationship with me before God. And God knows that I'm no superior to any other man. The same can be said of God and His covenant relationship with Israel, for example. They are special to God because He chose them as a people. The same can be said of those who are found in Christ Today, as followers of Jesus, we are special to Him because He chose us. If you have come to Christ, there's a contractual agreement, and that agreement depends solely on God and His loving faithfulness. God's people through history have always entered into covenant relationship with God 
by means of faith. And this faith, by God's grace, as James, the brother of Jesus, says in his letter, will inevitably lead to faithfulness. That is, to an evidence of a changed life. We find this in Romans chapter 4. He says, For Abraham was declared righteous or justified by works, then he has something to boast about. But what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, writes this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that his faith was working together with his works, and his faith was perfected by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Now Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In like manner, when God's people come to him through faith in Jesus, his son, God will keep his side of the agreement. He will prove to be faithful and will never leave us. He is faithful. And we also entered in that covenantal relationship with God through faith, which is the evident or actually becomes evident through our testimony in time. So this is important. God's covenantal love is one that guarantees the fulfillment of his promises, not our faithfulness. The guarantee provided by God is solely based on his faithfulness. This has always been the case. He is faithful. He would always remain faithful. Reflecting on God's covenantal relationship with Israel and with his the covenantal relationship that God has with the people that are found in Christ, with the church, Mark Kinsert wrote the following. The story of Jesus is incomprehensible apart from the story of Israel. God remains faithful to the genealogical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people, even when Israel is unfaithful. And this eternal fidelity grounds the church's assurance that she in the world will not be abandoned despite her own infidelity. This is amazing. Because God is faithful to Israel, we can fully trust that he will be faithful to us as well. He does not turn back on his covenant promise. He is faithful to his promises. What are the identity markers then? that unites the church and Israel in this covenantal agreement. This is seen by the fact, for example, that the New Testament describes the Jesus community in Israel-like terms. The 12 apostles, for example, correspond to the 12 sons of Jacob. And their future destined role, according to Jesus' prophecy, is united. The apostles will become the judges and the governing ones who will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel, according to Matthew 19, 29. That's a future event. Paul tells the Gentile converts, for example, those who are grounded in Christ, that they are now chosen, holy, beloved. All of these are biblical terms that are linked to God's election, to God's covenant with Israel. Peter is even more explicit in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, calling his hearers a chosen race or a chosen people. The Greek word is genos, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a treasured possession, God's own people. All of these words are linked to covenant language. Exodus 19, Isaiah 43, verse 20, and on. This is the language of the covenant that God had made with Israel. God chose Israel to be the nation through which the nations of the world will come to know God. And yes, they came to know God because 12 Jewish believers in the Jewish Messiah spread the gospel to all the ends of the earth. The Lord said to Israel in Isaiah 43, My chosen people, my people whom I formed for myself, they will declare my praise. And yet, listen to the words of Peter. Peter says of those who follow Jesus from all the nations, you are a chosen people so that you may declare the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There is therefore... In the New Testament, a clear identification of the Jesus community in Israel-like terms. Where Gentiles who did not know God or the God of Israel, now they have become the children of God. In their former manner of life, these Gentiles had done what unbelievers like to do, but now they are full members of the people of God, sharers of the promise bestowed on Israel. Later in Romans 9 verses 4 and 5 Paul actually writes my people my fellow countrymen who are Israelites to them belong the adoption as sons the glory the covenants the giving of the law the temple worship the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from them by human descent came Christ who is God over all forever in the immediate context of the verse that we begin today on verse 30, the Holy Spirit is mentioned, and Paul tells us that he intercedes, pleading and in groaning for us. Then in verses 20 to 30, he highlights the assurance offered by God the Father himself in having a plan and a purpose for his people, a plan that cannot be opposed. God will accomplish this because he made a covenant with his people. The terms of the covenant are immovable. He has determined that those whom have loved his son, those who have been called according to his purposes, that he will allow that all things will work together for their good. Because they were foreknown. Because God knew them in advance. He loved them in advance. And this is also said of Israel in Romans 11, 1 and 2. Paul says, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I too am an Israelite, says Paul. I am a descendant of Abraham, of the stock of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That foreknowing that he's using, that word that he's using is covenant language. God loved in advance. God cared and chose the people for his own glory, just like he has chosen people from all the nations for his own glory through the Messiah. Paul declares in the letter to Ephesians 
in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy, to be blameless, to be sons through Christ Jesus in keeping with the good pleasure of His will. Holiness, blamelessness, election, being chosen, all of these are words of the covenant. If you have ever struggled with accepting love from others, even by perhaps not being able to love yourself because you have distrusted expressions of love from people toward you, please hear these words. If you have pledged your life to Jesus, the Messiah of Israel and the Messiah of the nations, he calls you chosen. He calls you a special treasure. He foreknew you. He loved you, and he loves you immensely. He set you apart from him from before the foundation of the world. He predestined you to be his child. Like in this verses, in verse 30, we'll also find more of the promises, like Pastor Tom shared with us a couple of weeks ago, that basket of glory. Which promises are there that we're justified in Jesus, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that He will glorify us because He foreknew us, He predestined us, He justified us in His Son. This is a tremendous blessing. This chain of assurances Paul provides in the previous verses that lead to verse 31 and 39. And this brings me to my original point that takes off from verses 31 to 34. Nothing can thwart God's eternal purposes for his children. Paul says, therefore, what shall we say in view of these things? In view of all these promises, in view of all these things that Paul has mentioned before. Well, he continues, and he mentions glory. He mentions justification. He mentions election in the previous verses. The glory that is to be revealed and unfold at the return of Jesus. That is part of these things that he mentions. The sons of God will be revealed with a magnificent and imaginable uh, blessing. There will be, therefore, a future redemption of even the creation, not only of our bodies, but even of the creation that we see. We can even see that prophesied in Isaiah chapter 2, in Isaiah 11, verses 6 and on. You see it in Isaiah 24 and 25. All of these promises are there, and he will make sure that they are accomplished. And in verse 21, we find the promise that we who have the Spirit as first fruits, though we may groan inwardly, we know that we have been adopted, care, redeemed, and that our bodies will also be redeemed. So now we come to verse 32, and Paul writes, Indeed, he who did not spare his son, but gave him up 
for all of us. How will he not also along with his son, with him, with Jesus, how will he not freely give us all these things? Which things? All of the promises that he's mentioned before. Justification, being declared righteous. Now, there's an incredible portion in this text in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. This echoes what is known as the Akedah, or the binding of Isaac, found in Genesis 22. When Abraham, in offering his only son Isaac, the son of the promise, he had had an, a, a son before, but it was not the son of the promise. This was the son of his own body and of the body of his wife Sarah. And it says, in offering up of his own son, or rather, on his readiness to offer up his own son, he was found to be obedient to God's request. This story is pregnant with covenantal meaning all throughout. Loyalty pledged, obedience offered, promises reaffirmed. This is what Genesis 22 says. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your one and only son Isaac, whom you love, the one and only, and go to the land of Moriah. Or Moriah. So Abraham rose in the morning and he took Isaac. And Isaac said to his father, Dad, I see the fire, I see the wood, but I don't see a lamb for the burnt offering. Can you imagine the heart of this man? If I can just, if I look at my little boy, Judah, standing here in the front, if God was asking me to do the same, I would be weeping and wailing all throughout the time. Abraham knew that he had been required by God to offer up his son. So what did he say to Isaac? He said, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two walked together. When they arrived, Abraham built an altar there, and he laid wood in order. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand that he had taken and he took a knife and he went to kill his son because he was ready to fulfill God's requirement. But the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and he saw a ram. And Abraham went and he offered the ram to the Lord. Isaac is a type of Jesus. Abraham is a type of God the Father. God the Father offered up his son for us. His one and only 
son, the only one that shares his unique identity, the only one that shares his divinity, his very characteristic as God. And it says in the text that Abraham called that place Yahweh Jireh, he will provide. And then he uttered the words of the covenant. He said to Abraham, the Lord did, I will indeed bless you. I will make your seed as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the sea and the seashore and the sea and the seed. Your seed will possess the gates of their enemies and by your seed shall, shall all of the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. N.T. Wright explains it this way. This story became, in fact, the theological substructure of Israel's election and a guaranteed at the heart of the notion of God's chosenness there that it would be the, it would be the strange and challenging notion of divine provision, a provision that went beyond and indeed counter to human expectation. God would bless the world through Abraham's seed, but from the beginning, this seed and his, this blessing were to be seen as a gift of grace, an unexpected provision, not something that could be clung or taken for granted. The promise of blessing would come to the nations, to Abraham's seed. The gift of grace was realized in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the ultimate seed of Abraham, the ultimate Israelite through whom both Israel and the nations will be blessed. God's covenant love was established with Abraham and his descendants, and it would extend later to all the nations who would embrace God's only, his one and only son, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. So Paul continues in verse 34, who is then the one who condemns? Who can condemn us? who have been found in Christ, who are grounded in Jesus Christ. The implied answer is no one can. We are secure in Him. It is the Messiah who can condemn, but He is actually the one who died. And moreover, He is the one who was raised and the one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father who intercedes for us today. Paul is saying, He who alone can condemn is the one who intercedes on our behalf, who prays for us. Jesus is the perfect Israelite who died and who was raised and who, as God and men, as the root of Jesse, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, as the king of the Jews and the ruler of the nations, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, he, he, he in his amazing love currently intercedes on our behalf. He is our defender. He is our defender. Second point is this. The electing love of God in Christ secures the future victory of God's children. God has made a covenant with us through His Son, through the blood and the sacrifice of His Son. And it's because of that electing love of God, because of His faithfulness, not because of us. He will secure our future blessing, the victory in the end, in spite of difficult circumstances. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he continues to say, Shall tribulation or distress 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can any of these things really separate us from the Lord? Death itself, Paul is saying nothing can. Not suffering, not death, not famine, not persecution. As it is written, he continues and he quotes Psalm 44. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We who are counted as sheep for the slaughter. This psalm speaks of Israel as an oppressed people by his enemies, scattered among the nations and yet faithful to God's covenant. The psalmist prays for God's deliverance and acknowledges the futility of self-effort. In fact, it says in verse 7, I do not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. Paul is quoting this psalm and is applying it to all of those who are found in Christ Jesus, who are now being considered as sheep to be slaughtered, sometimes walking through trouble, through hardship, through persecution, through hunger, through poverty, through challenges, through attacks. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, Isaiah chapter 53. And sometimes, as this psalm says, we are led through trials and difficulties. But he has promised to never leave us, to never forsake us. His, he is interceding on our behalf. Next, we find from verses 35 to 39, a chiastic structure. It is interesting that we find this from verse 35 to 39. What a chiastic structure does is that you're able to analyze it by looking at the first line and the last line. So both the A and the A correspond, the B and the B correspond, and then you find the middle C there as being the place where the buried truth, the buried treasure is found. This is a literary device that is used often in Scripture to bring about a point of emphasis. And the emphasis here is that nothing can separate you and I from the love of Christ. Even, we, even though we may walk through sufferings, because believers will thoroughly overcome, because His faithfulness will carry us through, through victory. This is the reality that we find in the covenant. Though suffering may come, though we may, we may face persecution, though we may go through doubt, strive, difficulty, though we may be maligned, though we may even lose our marriages or go through sickness or death, he has promised to never leave us. Just like he was with Abraham throughout his period of waiting for the promise of his son, remember that he said to him, is there anything impossible for God? He will carry through his promises. Church, our victory is secured in him because he conquered, you and I will also conquer even if our current reality may be marked by temporary suffering and pain, please know that your destiny is secure, that He has promised to never leave you. This brings us to the third and final point. God's children cannot be separated from God's covenant love. We cannot. Nothing can. 
Verse 38 and 39, For I am convinced, says Paul, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things that come, nor powers. He is mentioning even the spiritual realm here. He's saying not even angels can separate you. Not the devil, not demonic powers, not anything can keep you away from God's love. Not high, nor what is depth. No, nothing. Nothing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ's love is expressed through His promise. He gives this promise to His children that we will be victorious. We find this through the book of Romans. Paul has already shown the great prize that God's love has done for humanity in Christ. God demonstrates His love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ, His Son, died for us. Consequently, nothing can stop His purposes, which are already good, as done. This is because the security found in God's covenantal agreement is due to His faithfulness. Just like He was able to enter into a covenant with Israel and he will carry it through until the end. He will carry it through the covenant he's made with all of those who have clinged to him through his son. N.T. Wright commenting on verse 39 and in the mentioning of God's love keeping those in Christ secured and grounded wrote these words. The notion of love does not just, as it were, indicate a strong emotion on the part of the covenant God. An emotion which leads him both to generous self-given and an unbreakable commitment no matter what may come in the way. It has to do with the divine covenant. The covenant that he made with Israel, sustained by the divine chesed. This is the Hebrew term for steadfast, unwavering love. The love, the perfect love of God, as it's celebrated again and again in Scripture. Paul's references here to God's love in the Messiah thus marks the Messiah, Christ, and His people as covenant people, as the elect. Covenant love reaches out to embrace a larger company, all of those who are grounded and found in Christ. Because we are marked by the Messiah, by Jesus, our Savior, the one and only Son of God. He will carry out His plans through us and in us and will bring about what He has promised. Church, the covenant love of God securely guarantees for those in Christ an overarching victory that He has won and the accomplishment of God's eternal purposes. May I ask you this? Have you entered into a covenantal agreement with God by pledging your life and your future through Jesus in faithfulness to Him? Have you given your life to Jesus? If your answer is no, or perhaps not yet, today is the day. Today is the day to give your life to Him. He will take you and He will seal you with the spirit of holiness, which is the assurance 
of the things to come, which is the pledged, already given, of what is to be unfolded in the future. Would you pray with me? Mighty God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for the covenant blessing that we find through the salvation that your son Jesus has bestowed on all men, Jew and Gentile together. Thank you because it does not depend on our faithfulness, even though our faith is evidenced through faithfulness and a good testimony. But it is not our faithfulness or our good works that secures it. It is actually your faithfulness to the covenant, the covenant in the blood of your son, the covenant of which Jeremiah 31, 31 spoke of, the one that Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians 11, saying that this is the covenant in the blood of the Son of God. My prayer today, O Lord, is that you would touch the hearts of every individual here who has yet to yield his heart or her heart to you. That they would seize the moment, that they would not leave this building without speaking with someone, without praying, without giving their heart to you, or simply even coming to you at any corner, at any place, and saying, Lord, I pledge my life to, my life to you. And I give you my heart, Lord Jesus, forgive me, cleanse me, make me a new person. I too want to be part of that blessed hope, the blessed promises that you have for those who have entered in covenant relationship with you through your son. Please touch every individual, O Lord, and be glorified. We adore you, we worship you. We take great delight in you, almighty God of heaven and earth. We praise you in the name of Christ the Lord. Amen.